Good music. Good music. I could picture Ruth and Naomi singing that last song. Uh, You're always with us, always faithful. So we're in the book of Ruth. Someone this morning asked me, and I'm sure it was because she was extremely excited. She said, are we still in Ruth? Uh, uh, But I know she meant that in the best possible way, or at least that's how I interpreted it. So, yes, we're still in Ruth. Uh, We're in chapter four today. We're going to start chapter four. Uh, Looking at God's loyal love. Uh, Today might be one of those days when I'm all over the place. I've tried and okay, I've tried and I've tried to prepare, uh, but sometimes I'm still wrapping my head around all of this uh, in what's happening here because it's such good stuff. So we're going to do our best uh, to deliver God's perfect message through through an imperfect messenger. Uh, But God's word never fails to produce something. Uh, by those that will receive it. But we're looking at God's loyal love, and I'm not sure we ever mentioned that when we're talking about God's love, especially in the Old Testament. I don't know if you're familiar with the word hesed. Uh, That is the word for love, uh, specifically God's love toward the nation of Israel, toward his people uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, which would include Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and those folks we've been looking at. Uh, Hesed love, that's a Hebrew word for love in the Old Testament. It's specifically talking about loyalty. It's talking about commitment. It's talking about faithfulness in those words describing the kind of love that God has toward his people. Committed love, loyal love, faithful Love, Even when we are not loyal, even when we are faithless, even when our commitment wavers, his never does. Uh, And that is our assurance of eternal life. Uh, As imperfect as we are, as uh, disloyal as we can be, God's love toward us never wavers. It never changes. It never becomes any Do you realize that each day that you wake up, God's love is never any less committed or loyal or faithful than it was the day before? Uh, That he is always at work. In fact, Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I am always at work and my father, too, is always working. Uh, And I believe that Paul told the Philippians that uh, God is faithful. He will complete the good work that he has begun in us until that day we see Christ. So when we're talking about love in the book of Ruth, we're talking about God's hesed love, his loyalty, his commitment, his faithfulness uh, through thick and thin, through good and bad, uh, the ups and the downs that he is always there and he's always consistent. So we see in the man of Boaz in this story of Ruth, we see a picture of Christ, don't we? As Boaz is called the kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi. Uh, To protect them, to ensure that they have an heir to carry on the family name and to uh, get the land back into the family. So that Boaz is a picture of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is our redeemer. So we see Jesus as redeemer in the book of Ruth. I want to read this opening story or example for you. I'm not particularly thinking of any family in this room today. 
Because sometimes in these illustrations, I see heads start to drop like, oh, my gosh, you're talking about me. Uh, no, not necessarily. This was a pre prepared illustration that I came across in some of my reading. But I think it relates. So what I want to do is I want to read this little story. It's brief. And then we're going to look at what's happening in Ruth, chapter four, verses one through six. Then we're going to come back to this story after we look at Jesus in this story. So here's the story goes like this says John just turned 16 years old and in many ways it is an exciting time in his life. John is active in sports. He's reasonably popular and a decent student. That's an interesting choice of words for a 16 year old young man. Decently good student. John's active in church and active in the youth group. And by all appearances, it seems as if he's doing quite well. However, behind closed door in the Joneses family home, John regularly struggles with his parents. Yeah, we kids, kids, we have a struggle with our parents sometimes, right? They just, yeah, it's hard being a child, right? With parents. I don't know. Sometimes. So he struggles regularly with his parents. He finds them to be legalistic at times and to be very hypocritical as well. He questions their authority and he occasionally chooses to take a path of disobedience. The conflict in the home does not result in any kind of violence, but it is very stifling and at times borders on explosive. Conflict doesn't happen every day, but under normal conditions, you could anticipate maybe three times a week that there's some conflict that's going to break out between John and his parents. When one factors in their busy schedules, the conflicts occur usually in the evenings when the family is at home altogether. Yeah, conflict does usually occur when people are together. Uh, I've, I've rarely seen conflict when people are apart. So, um, but yeah, you know what? By the way, wherever you have two sinners together, you're going to have conflict. Uh, it shouldn't be, but right as part of human nature. Tommy is John's little brother. Tommy is 11 while he doesn't really idolize John, he is following in his brother's footsteps regarding their parents. Tommy's a very good student and he has lots of friends. At home, though, he's becoming kind of disrespectful to his parents, especially his mother. And Tommy agrees with John's opinion that their parents are very legalistic and hypocritical. The parents' names are Craig and Karen, and they're struggling with what to do. They're faithful members of the church, even though they don't attend every Sunday. They try to be good parents to both of the boys by providing for them, supporting them in their various activities and giving them what they themselves never had when they were children. However, Craig and Karen admit that the conflict is a regular part of the home and that the frequency of conflict is proportional or it grows according to how much time they spend together. So everyone in the home is discouraged and doesn't really enjoy spending time together. The family wants help. So what we're going to do now is we're going to look at now the story of Ruth and Boaz in chapter four. Then we're going to bring Jesus into the picture. Then we'll come back to this family, the Jones family. I told you I wasn't make I didn't pull this out. Uh, This was already prepared, uh, written up by someone else. So. Okay, I just don't want to be tarred and feathered after church, uh, at least not till I have my lunch. Okay, what I want to do is teach us or help us to see, as this author says, 
the robustness of Scripture's ability to speak directly to the issues that people face today. My, what I'm saying is we go into a book like the book of Ruth and we, we get involved in the story and we see that Jesus is Redeemer. But maybe we're not seeing specifically how does this passage of Scripture and this story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi apply to me. And hopefully today we'll see a little bit more of that. You see on your outlines, and if you didn't get those, I know the guys have some outlines. If anyone wants to outline to take notes, just raise your hand and the guys have them there for you. But look at our journey on the front of the aisle. Anyone need it? They're peeking in here. No. OK. Uh, look at our journey. The story of Ruth. Uh, what we have seen so far. We've seen the pain of covenant faithlessness when they made some bad decisions and they moved to a foreign land and they ran into a lot of trouble, didn't they? Uh, Naomi's husband died and her two sons died and they were plunged into poverty. They were vulnerable widows. But also then we see the pity of God start to take effect in the lives of these women by allowing Ruth and Naomi to return back to Bethlehem during the time of the harvest so that they'll be provided for. Then we see more of the providential provision of God as we moved through chapter two, the ways that God was providing for them, especially when they came in contact with Boaz, who might be able to help them. Then we see in chapter three, the pursuit of redemption, where Ruth and Naomi see Boaz as the legal family relative, a distant relative who was allowed by law to marry Ruth to rescue them out of their poverty, to redeem the land that had belonged to Naomi's husband. Now, as we come into chapter four, we're going to see, first of all, the purchase of redemption that Boaz is going to. Go and try and buy this land that belonged uh, to Naomi's dead husband. So you see on your outlines in this section of Ruth, we're going to see in the person of Boaz, but perfected in Christ and then to be imitated by us as Christians four characteristics of true love. We'll only look at two today because I'm very long winded and Lord willing, we'll do two next week. Some of you are saying yes. OK, but I just want us to take our time. And if you were with us on Wednesday night, we covered this. There's going to be some new tidbits here. So don't check out. Uh, and I am pleased to see everybody that was there Wednesday is here this morning. OK, because we're studying the same thing on Wednesday nights in a little bit more detail. In verses one through four, we see, first of all, the true love takes action. And then in verses five and six, we'll see that true love is willing to pay the price. So true love is more than just words. True love takes action. Verse one of Ruth, chapter four, it says, now Boaz went up to the gate and he sat down there and behold, the close relative of whom he had spoken was passing by. You see, there was another family member closer in relation than Boaz, and he had first right at this land. But Boaz loved Ruth and he wanted to marry her. So he's going to go and talk to this other relative and see what can be worked out. So he saw this other closer relative passing by and he said to him, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to that closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell this piece of land which belonged to her brother or our brother Elimelech. So I thought I should inform you and tell you, buy it before all of these witnesses who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. 
If you can redeem the land, then redeem it. But if you can't, then tell me uh, so that I can know. Because there's no one but you who can redeem it. And then I come after you. And then this other closer relative said what? I will redeem it. Wow. That's a downer, isn't it? Uh, For Boaz. He's in love with Ruth. But now this relative is saying, hey, I have the means. This sounds like a good business deal. Uh, They haven't even mentioned Ruth. This is just about the land. He says, this looks pretty good. So he says, I will take it. What must Boaz have thought? But see, Boaz had a plan. I think he anticipated this answer from this other relative. So verse five, then sometimes the smallest, most insignificant words carry the most (laughs) importance. Then Boaz said, oh, yeah, by the way, on the day you buy this field from the hand of Naomi, you also must take Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased in order to raise up the name of that deceased and his inheritance. Oh, so now this other relative is like, oh, not only do you want me to buy this land, I am required by Leverite law to marry this young lady because they have no husband to carry on the family name. So now he's like, oh, I don't know if it's still a good deal or not. Uh, it's like buy one, get one free. He, he I don't think he was as interested. Verse six. Uh, are we still in verse five? Let me know we got it. All right. Verse six. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself. Because then I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption because I cannot redeem it. Interesting here. First, he said, I'll take it, you know, sold. Then he says, OK, you take the land. You have to marry this young lady because they have no heir. I can't take it. I'm sorry. I'm not able. Uh, it's interesting. We don't hear. We don't know this guy's name, but we're learning a lot about him as we move through here. Some things to take notice of quickly. Notice there is a contrast here between two redeemers. A selfless redeemer in the person of Boaz, but a very self-interested redeemer in the person of this other relative. Boaz is sincere. This other redeemer is not. And of course, we're to be thinking of Jesus Christ, our true redeemer. So Boaz takes action. What does he do? He's very intentional. His love for Ruth is very purposeful, very intentional. He calls a meeting. He gathers these 10 elders. He wants to inform this other relative of what is going on. He's got a plan. It's not just a haphazard love that he feels for this young woman, Ruth. He's a man of action. He's a man of intention. He's a man of planning. And by the way, that is how God works in our lives with intention, with purpose, with a plan. It's not just random, chaotic, emotional, haphazard, spontaneous love. God works very specifically, very intentionally, very purposefully in our lives each and every day if we are his children. We may not always see it. We may not always recognize it. It may not always be clear. We may not always like how things are going down. But one thing we know by faith is that he is in sovereign control of what is happening to us each day. So we see that here. 
So it's interesting. There weren't ten elders just happened to be, you know, walking by. Oh, look, there's a group of elders. Hey, guys, come over here. Uh, no, uh, the city gate would be the place where all the legal transactions were to take place in front of a lot of witnesses. So he had planned ahead of time to ask these ten witnesses to come. And by the way, he was only required to have two or three. But he calls ten. Why? Because he wants everything to be on the up and up because that's the kind of guy that he was. He wanted things to be done very properly. He wanted to make sure, even in this troubling situation, that things were done correctly the right way, in a way that was pleasing to God, without any kind of appearance of underhandedness. Because we think, this story, who does Boaz love? Who does Boaz want to marry? Ruth. So when he sits down with this gentleman, we would think the first thing he would bring up would be Ruth. But what does he bring up? He brings up the land. Why does he do that? I think he's doing that so that he cannot be accused of marrying Ruth just to get that land. And he wanted things to be done in a very proper God honoring way, according to the law, according to how things were supposed to be done. Is there anything else that kind of. Puts a bee in your bonnet or a twist in your knickers, I guess they say, about this story. Why are we not being told the name of this closer relative? That drives me nuts. Who is this guy? I mean, this story has been all about names, right? I mean, we, have, we even have Elimelech. I mean, that's, you can barely even say that name. We're given his name. We're given Malon and Chilion, the two sons, were given Orpah, the, uh, the other wife, were given Boaz, were given Ruth. Then you come to this very important figure in this story and we're not told his name. And sometimes in Scripture, it's important to see not just what is there, but what is not there. And I think the writer intentionally wants us to see the contrast between these two types of redeemers, one who is selfless and one who is selfish because another reason I believe Boaz brings up the issue of the land first because who would be more concerned about that land Ruth or Naomi Naomi it belonged to her deceased husband Boaz is acting in love as much for the uh, benefit of Naomi as he is for Ruth the woman that he loves and wants to marry You see, this man is demonstrating love in action for all people involved. And get this, folks, who else is he thinking about as he offers or he brings up the issue of the land first? The other relative. Wow. So this guy is an obstacle to Boaz getting the woman that he loves I don't think Boaz even really cares about the land. He he loves Ruth and he wants to be with Ruth. But he is thinking even about what is best for this other relative who could be a hindrance to what he wants. That is love in action. Boaz is thinking about every person involved in a situation, not himself. It's really, excuse me, quite extraordinary As we look at it and one author summed it up like this, he said, it is natural to do what is good for oneself. It is harder to do what is good for others. And that's what we're seeing here in Boaz. So secondly, he shows us that true love is willing to pay the price. 
This other relative is not willing to pay the price. How interesting that first he says, I'll redeem it, I'll take it. Then he finds out what the cost truly is. And he says, oh, no, I can't. Is that the truth that he can't? Didn't he just say that he could and he would? When he said, I can't, what he really meant was what? I won't. The cost is too high. Well, how do you know that? Well, look again at verse six. What was his concern? His concern was, okay, I'm going to marry this young lady. We're going to have kids. Then I'm going to have to split the inheritance between not only my own children, but any children I have with her. This man was greedy. This man was thinking only about material possessions, about wealth and money, about turmoil within his home. If he were to bring in a new wife and have other children, there would be all this squabbling and fighting over the inheritance. Because when he says inheritance, he's not talking about what he's going to get. He's talking about what he's going to leave behind. Taking on this young lady is going to create a whole host of problems for me, the greatest of which will be financial. Uh, this is not a good deal for me. So when he said, I can't redeem it, he really meant I won't because the price is too high. But praise the Lord, praise God that Ruth and Naomi had a redeemer who was willing to pay the price. Boaz was willing to pay the price to redeem to redeem Naomi and Ruth and to buy back the land, which, of course, points us to whom Jesus Christ, who was willing to pay the price to redeem us. One redeemer Both redeemers said they would redeem, but only one actually did. So now, what are we seeing here about Boaz? We're seeing that Boaz is a servant. We've already talked about this a little bit. Boaz is demonstrating that he is a servant, that he serves other people. And you know what the word Christology is? We've mentioned that before, the study of Christ. There is Christ in every book of the Bible. And in the book of Ruth, we see Christ as redeemer. Boaz is demonstrating that he is a servant, which points us again, doesn't it, to Jesus Christ as the real, true servant. And if you follow along on your outlines, and we want to go to the gospel of Mark, because the gospel of Mark, each gospel presents Jesus in a different light. We already know that, don't we? Does anyone remember how Matthew presents Jesus, presents Jesus as king? We'll skip Mark. Luke presents Jesus as man. John presents Jesus as God. And the book of Mark presents Jesus as servant, servant. Just like Boaz, who is a type of Christ, we see Jesus as not only a servant, but the suffering servant. That Isaiah predicted would come. Now you have to look at your outlines. If you usually don't, you're going to be lost because you really need to follow along. We see Jesus is the suffering servant who calls people to follow him. Now, what we want to do is remember our story about the Jones family with the two boys and the mom and dad and all the conflict. And now we see what would scripture bring to bear on the things that they're struggling with as a family. We see the usefulness in the application of scripture as it's connected directly to being a servant. So, first of all, on your outlines, Roman numeral one under letter B, we're going to go through the book of Mark in like five minutes. 
So chapters 1 through 8 ask us a lot of questions about Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? We see things uh, like in chapter 1, verses 32 and 34, and I have all these listed, and you can go back and look at them uh, sometime on your own. But we see that in uh, the end of chapter 1, we see demons knowing who Jesus was, because they say, what have you to do with us before the appointed time they knew who he was? Then we go over to chapter four of Mark and Jesus, there's a storm and they wake him up and he quiets the storm and the disciples declare even the wind and the sea obey him. How can that be? Then we go into Mark chapter five and the demons again call Jesus. They call out to him and say, Jesus, son of the most high God. We're getting all this identity in Mark of who Jesus is. Chapter six. We see Jesus feeding the 5,000 with only five loaves and two fishes. Then also in chapter 6, what? We see the disciples in the boat by themselves. Uh, And what's interesting, uh, the storm comes up at 3 o'clock in the morning. The fourth watch is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And who comes walking across the water? Jesus. Yeah, and we kind of just take that for granted. He was walking on the water in the middle of a storm. But what's interesting, we're going to go there in a little bit. Do you realize that happens the same day as he fed the 5,000? So earlier that day, he fed the 5,000. Then at 3 o'clock that morning, there's the storm, and he comes walking on the water. And it's very instructive because in that passage there at the end of Mark 6, it says the disciples... Didn't know what to think about what was going on, that their belief was pretty low. They actually thought it was a ghost. And they even though they had just seen him do that miracle with the five thousand, he's trying to get them to understand who he is, who he is. And then in chapter seven, he heals a deaf and mute person. Chapter eight, he feeds 4000 people at one time and he heals a blind man. And I think there's a a foreign Gentile woman whose daughter he heals also. But go to Mark chapter eight, because what's happening here is very intentional by the writer. And sometimes it escapes us because we don't often study the big picture of a Bible book. We just do the verse by verse. And but if you look at it from a bird's eye view, chapters one through eight are building and building and building. It's like a pot of water that's boiling and boiling. Have you ever left the potatoes boiling, you know, and you're then you get all involved in your CSI or whatever it is, you know, and then you hear and you go in there and it's like, you know, all over the place. That's what's supposed to be happening as you read Mark one through eight. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. Now look at verse twenty nine. Well, Verse 27 of Mark 8. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he now questioned his disciples, saying to them, read it together with me. Who do people say that I am? Wow. The most important question each of us will ever answer in our entire lives. Right there. It doesn't matter who you are. Verse 28. They told him, saying, some people say you're John the Baptist. Other people say you're Elijah. But others are saying that you're one of the prophets. But look what Jesus does. See, they they were trying to get off track a little bit, but he was trying to pin them down. He's pressuring them. And he continued by questioning them. He was pushing the point. 
But, very important word, but, circle, highlight, underline. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Based on everything that you've seen so far in your time with me, who do you think that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. That's interesting. (laughs) That's not very evangelistic. Don't tell anyone about me. Uh, He was thinking about his father's timeline. He knew things could happen. So all of that, Mark, trying to lay out his identity, leads up to that one question. Who do you say that I am? We would think that there would be great celebration, rejoicing, some very interesting, positive things coming now after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. But in verse 31 of Mark, what do we see happens immediately after they identify Jesus as the one and only true living God, the Messiah? What do we see? Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, he would rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Yikes. But turning, I try not to chuckle, but I'm afraid I know my personality. I might do the same thing. (laughs) he, He took the Messiah, the God of the universe, aside and rebuked him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. We don't have time to get into it, but what Jesus is saying is suffering is sometimes part of God's plan. Loss is sometimes part of God's plan. Hard times and difficulties are many times part of God's plan, but always a plan with a purpose, not just random chaos or fate or karma or luck or coincidence. So that's what Jesus was saying. But right on the heels, number two, on the first page of your outline, Mark immediately records a prediction of Jesus' death and suffering. He does that three times. We see that in chapter 8. We see it in chapter 9. We see it in chapter 10. And then Mark chapters 11 through 16 go on to explain the fulfillment of Jesus' predictions about his suffering. Turn your page over. We've got to hit the gas. Run out of time. So after Jesus predicts his suffering and death, we see different types of responses from his disciples. Very interesting. In chapter eight, we already saw Peter rebukes him and then he rebukes Peter. Chapter nine, it says after he talked about this suffering and death, it says they did not understand and they were afraid to ask him. That also would be me. I'm not asking him. You ask him. No, you ask him. They were afraid to ask him what he was talking about. And then in chapter 10, we see James and John coming to Jesus, don't we? And saying, hey, we just have a little thing to ask you, you know, just a little favor, you know, when in your kingdom could I sit on one side of the throne and my brother on the other? No big deal. You know, just think about it. Uh, And then Jesus challenged him. How? He said, are you willing to go through the same suffering that I'm going to go through? And they're like, sure. Yeah. And then he said, you are going to go through that. But still, that's not mine to give. See, they didn't understand the suffering. Uh, They didn't understand the suffering servant aspect of Jesus life. Even after he explained it to them. Now. Also very interesting in the book of Mark. 
We are building a case here, okay? It's like we're building a tower or a pyramid. After each of their responses, what does Jesus do? He responds with teaching them about the importance of humility and service. Interesting, isn't it? All this Jesus does and says about who he is, he is the Christ. Then immediately after each of those, he talks about suffering. And then after each of those times, he then talks to them when they respond about how important it is to be humble and to be a servant. And we can't do all of them. But if we we read chapter 10 for our scripture reading, if you go to chapter nine and look at verse verses 33 through 37, Uh, We see the second example. So three times he talks about the suffering and then three times he immediately teaches them afterwards about the importance of being humble and to be a servant. uh, Mark 933, they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he began to question them, the disciples again. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they'd been discussing with one another, which 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 one of them was the greatest. (laughs) I'm trying not to laugh, but. I mean, but we can all be like that, right? Uh, As if he didn't know what they were talking about. Hey, what were you guys talking about? Oh, nothing, nothing, football scores, you know, same old thing. Uh, And they were talking about which one of the 12 was the greatest disciple. It's like they were going to get the mug. Number one disciple. Uh, I don't know. Uh, So sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and a servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, uh, he said to them. Just a little side note. If they're in Capernaum and they're in a house, we know that Peter lived in Capernaum. This could be in Peter's house. He could be having one of Peter's kids sitting on his lap. Uh, We think that's possible. Verse 37. Whoever receives one child, meaning a believer who has the faith like a child, in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me. But him who sent me. So here's what we see next. That Jesus, the suffering servant, and this is what we want to grasp here today. And this is what Boaz grasped, I think, about God, because he had not yet seen or heard of Christ. Jesus, the suffering servant, is not simply a blessing for his disciples. He calls for a response from them. You see, this is a huge problem in Christianity today. Everybody wants the blessings. Nobody wants the sacrifice. Everyone is like, God, God, yes, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus, you know, and we want him to do all these good things. And we want the blessing part. But if we really, truly understood what it meant to be a disciple, we would read through the book of Mark and understand that Jesus expects his disciples to exhibit a certain type of sacrificial, self-denying behavior. Look at the list. And this all comes out of the study in the book of Mark. Jesus expects his disciples to follow him. Jesus expects his disciples to live a life of self-denial. Take up your cross daily. Jesus expects his disciples to display a compassionate, service-oriented attitude toward others. Number four, Jesus says the servant is the greatest. He then says that he came to serve and to give his life. And the point is, every time Jesus predicted his death, he immediately taught his disciples the importance of being a servant. 
when there's conflict in a home like the home of the Joneses that we read about, what is going to be a key to diffusing the conflict? What will be a key to honoring God in that conflict? What is the first concept or idea that we should bring in to help this family that's struggling? Being a servant. See, the problem is that when there's conflict, usually there's winners and losers, right? And after losing so many times, things get discouraging and depressing. And oftentimes suffering, if not handled in a godly way, can turn into self-pity. Though we know our Lord's suffering never turned into self-pity. How could that be? How could that be? Because he completely entrusted his suffering and the conflict that he dealt with every day, including conflict among his own disciples. I mean, he says, hey, I want to tell you guys, I am going to be betrayed and crucified and mocked and beaten and put to death. I need to prepare you guys. And what was their response? Hey, which one of us is most important? Can you tell us? Sorry to interrupt your story about suffering, Jesus, but we need to know. You know, because when you're gone, someone's got to be in charge. And Jesus kept saying, the key to all this conflict is to be a servant. Johnny or John and Tommy, you need to quit acting like you're little kings on your own thrones and learn what it means to be a servant as children to your parents and to your siblings. And mom and dad, Craig and I can't remember her name now. Karen, thanks. Ooh, someone's listening. All right. All right. Craig and Karen, what's going to help with this conflict is if we take on the mindset of Jesus and look for ways to serve rather than looking for ways to protect and promote our own agenda. And dad, you're the head of the home. You're a servant leader of the home. You're not a king who sits on a throne and makes demands and commands and then everybody does what you say. Let's talk about this. Now, I think I'd be more gentle. That came off a little harsh, didn't it? Sorry. But bringing idea of service and servanthood, if we are followers of Jesus, you see how the scriptures have a lot to say about the so-called modern problems that we struggle with today. So what are the two powerful truths that we take home from the Gospel of Mark and from the life of Boaz? Number one, we see that Jesus is the suffering servant who gave his life. And then secondly, folks, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, then he calls us as his followers to a servant and self-denial approach to life. To a Servant and self-denial approach to life. Now, let's make it really real. So if you're in the midst of a conflict or a problem, whatever it may be, a, a crisis or something is going on, think in terms of how you can serve or respond in a servant-like approach to the problem. We saw last week that God's approach to our life is quite often counterintuitive. That's usually not our first response. Our first response is usually to come out swinging and fight for our rights and to assert ourselves because that's what the world tells us we should do. But that's not the way of a follower of Jesus. 
And then to wrap this up, to close this, look at the three points on the bottom. I put them there for you to try to help us. Where do we go from here? First of all, we need to try to reorient our thinking to the greatness of Jesus, to the suffering servant, which puts our own suffering in perspective. What do we mean by that? We mean we go to the scriptures in places like the book of Mark and we see Boaz in the book of Ruth who are the epitome of serving. And we begin to try to think of whatever it is we're dealing with. Think of it with God's thoughts. Think of it in terms of sifting it through the grid of what the Bible says rather than immediately, you know, processing it in our own thinking. We think God's thoughts. We believe that the scriptures are sufficient to help us with whatever we're dealing with. Secondly, that song we were singing earlier, I don't know where Joey went, about running, the song that was about running or something. And then I was thinking about one of my bullet points here. I thought, hmm, that's really good. And we never plan, plan that. The music always just matches the message. We learn to run to the Redeemer and to follow his example. You know, every person in this Jones home needs to learn how to take their concerns, first of all, to the Lord. To go to prayer, to go to the scriptures, to find out what the Lord would have them to do. And to do what Jesus always did. First Peter chapter 2 tells us that when he was reviled against, you know, he never reviled in return. What did he do? He kept entrusting himself to his father. And Peter says, who perfectly judges all people. He knew Peter knew his own. Peter himself knew that if he were to take personal retribution against someone, it would always just end in a mess. And then lastly, folks, circle, highlight, underline. You know, I love to say that. Number three, I'm not sure, but I think we really need to work on this because I think we have been lulled to sleep by the Laodicean church of America. We are just much too lukewarm about following the Lord. And as we move through the book of Mark, what do we learn? We learn that as Jesus followers, we have to commit ourselves to answer that call to radically follow him. Well, what does that mean? I don't mean you often do something crazy. And in the context of the book of Mark, we're talking about being a servant, even in the midst of crisis and conflict and problems. To radically follow Jesus means I look into the scriptures to see how he responds to every situation. And then I try by his grace to respond in like manner. That's radical Christianity. And that's what we need. So we have introduced here two characteristics of true love that we see in Boaz. Uh, perfected in Christ. We're commanded as Christians to imitate. Do you remember what those are? Because I'm kind of forgetting. Where are we at? Oh, right here. That true love takes action and then true love is willing to pay the price. Let's stand up together. You know, the scriptures are clear that to show his love for us, God took action, didn't he? He didn't just say, I love you. What does the scripture say? God sent his one and only son. That's action. That whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. And does not God's love for us? Is it not willing to pay the price? The ultimate price of his life. 
And folks, I guess I'm talking to all of us because it's never too late to change, but especially to the young people because you're still kind of starting out. I I know sometimes the young, and rightly so, get turned off by the wishy-washy, lukewarm American Christianity that we see. And it's tough. But I'm telling you, and I know there are believers in here that are modeling Christ. But we don't, I want to tell you as a pastor, and I know other folks in here will tell the young people, that we believe that to follow Jesus Christ should be a radical thing. It should be a serious commitment. It should be something that permeates every area of our lives. It's not just being churchy or being religious. It's having a vibrant, dynamic, daily uh, relationship with the Lord that comes from being a person of prayer and being a person who is saturated with the scriptures. So I say all of us, but particularly, I guess, to the younger. And for me, that's a lot of people, as you know, the older we get. But to make that commitment like Boaz, Boaz was in that tough situation. And yet he was thinking about everybody else, wasn't he? He was thinking about Naomi. He was thinking about Ruth. He was even thinking about that other person that was standing in the way of what he wanted. Isn't that radical? When really he could have done some underhanded, shady things to get what he wanted. But he didn't. He said, I'm going to serve. I'm going to be willing to pay the price. And I'm going to trust God to do whatever God wants to do. And I will then praise him for it. Even if it doesn't turn out to my personal gain. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together today. I hope I wasn't too rambling. I hope your word shines through. We see Boaz acting as a servant and greater than that. We see our Lord Jesus Christ acting as the suffering servant who was willing to pay the price of his own life. And Father, we believe by faith that he is still present and available to help us today with whatever it is that we may struggle with or whatever questions or confusion we may have. And Father, we understand that to follow you sometimes requires us to think and to say and to do radical things that seem to be very countercultural. But Father, help us to be people of the word, to know what you require of us. Help us to be affectionately attached to you because of a relationship we have with you that drives us to want to obey you and follow you. Father, thanks for bringing each person here today. We don't believe in fate or coincidence. You've divinely decided to have each of us here. I pray that we've been strengthened. I pray that maybe our vision has been cleared a little bit. Father, we want to again bring before your feet uh, whatever it is you have for us ministry-wise in Boyle Heights. And Father, as far as bringing someone to us who's willing to live there, we'll leave that in your hands. But we're praying toward that end. We believe that's the next logical step. So, Father, all these things and all the details of our lives, we just praise you and honor you and hope that you have glory in the way that we live our lives as your disciples. And it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here today, folks. Don't forget, ladies, if you want to sign up, today's the last day for the summer Bible study.